Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion. And welcome to Unscripted. Today, from Nelson Mandela to current President Ramaphosa, we discuss South Africa's legacy at the UN with Ambassador Jerry Majila. This is the sixth episode of Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. This month, South Africa is the president of the Security Council, and Stephanie, Ambassador Majila has a packed agenda that focuses on Africa. That's correct. In general, issues affecting Africa, such as peacekeeping, make up the majority of items on the Council's agenda. But they'll talk about other global issues as well. South Africa is currently a member of the so-called A3, an informal coalition of three non-permanent African members on the Security Council. And it's meant to strengthen the representation of the continent. This year, the two other African countries on the council are Ivory Coast and Equatorial Guinea. And in January, Niger and Tunisia joined the council for two years. So this is becoming a more common strategy for regions, banding together to hopefully make their time on the council more productive. Now, South Africa started its term on the council in January 2019, so October is the first presidency of its term. A bit of history for you, South Africa was a founding member of the UN, but in 1974, they were suspended because of international opposition to apartheid. After apartheid ended in 1994, South Africa was readmitted to the UN. Since then, it's been on the council three times in 10 years. That's a lot compared with other countries who've served about three times since the UN was founded in 1945, not to mention the 63 countries that never have. So back to this month's agenda. The council will discuss the many peacekeeping missions in Africa. It has already held a meeting on taking guns out of children's hands by 2020. This is the silencing the guns issue that is very dear to the ambassador's heart. Other than that, the council will also travel to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, for a meeting with the African Union Peace and Security Council and take a side trip to South Sudan. Interestingly, even though the council will be in East Africa during the trip, South Africa has planned a meeting on Libya. And it's no coincidence. We'll talk about it later on. Stephanie was able to chat with Ambassador Machila to discuss this month's presidency and learn more about who he is as a person. Machila has been a permanent representative since 2016 here in New York, but also worked at the UN in Geneva before being posted here. So he wasn't a stranger to UN dynamics and bureaucracy before arriving. He was also involved in the anti-apartheid movement and the creation of the modern South African state apparatus. He was in exile for more than 10 years, representing the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela's party, and supporting the cause. He was one of the founding fathers of South Africa's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1994. So, Stephanie, what's he like? Ambassador Majila has a unique vision of the world. When you meet with him, he does not shake your hand. He does a fist bump. He also doesn't call you madam. He calls you sister. So as you listen, you'll notice he has his own way of communicating his ideas and his politics. I think what stands out is his humane approach to any issue. You are taking over the presidency of the Security Council after the General Assembly, and it's going to be a month of 
five weeks. So would you say that you're excited or that you are already exhausted? No, I mean, it's a, it's a responsibility that we prepared for. Uh, we knew that um, since um, the beginning of the year, that our presidency will come immediately after 74th Unga. So we've been planning uh, for this period uh, all along. So it's not for us a shock. It was something that was predictable, that uh, immediately as Unga curtains falls off, we'll have to start the security council. And you moved in uh, New York City in 2016. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how it's been so far to represent South Africa in, at the UN and to live in New York City? I mean, it's, it's a privilege and um, a responsibility to represent the country in the United Nations in New York. Well, I was um, a PR in Geneva of South Africa organization there. So it's a familiar environment. Uh, New York is, um, is different, but it's better because it is in the same building. Every uh, meeting is have the same building. You just move around. Unlike Geneva, where you go to different locations within the city. Here, you know, and two, it's not very far from our mission. It's a walk away. It's five minutes walk from the seven permanent missions to come to the United Nations. So it's easier for us. Uh, the, the third thing is that I think New York is, is a plan in a way that it makes life slightly easier. You can walk. It has easy access to it. So if you plan your movement around New York, I think things can be slightly easier. The fourth thing is that everybody is here in New York, in the UN, and you, you have a sense that um, you are in a true multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic society. There's so much diversity. And for me, that's the most important thing, that uh, you meet people from all over the world, but with one common aim to uphold international peace and security. That, to me, is the, 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 the issue of being in New York, that you are part and parcel of this army of civil servants, of diplomats, who are uh, occupied on making things better for everybody all over the world. So what do you like to do when you're not busy uh, hanging out with the diplomats at the UN? No, normally there are a few things that you do. There's a lot of meetings and sometimes different dinners, you know, specific dinners, either group of friends uh, on this particular issue, group of friends on gender parity, group of friends on environment, group of friends. So you spend a lot of uh, dinners, breakfast in those areas. And, and secondly, of course, uh, you know, I stay next to a park, so I spend a lot of time in the park, um, you know, walking, running in the park. And there's a lot of good music around town, so you go sometimes. So you spend our time trying to relax as much as you can because we have a pressure times, as you know, the UN. You have much pressure, CSW, you have June, July pressure, high-level political forum. Then you have UNGA, then you have committees. Right now it's committee. Everybody's in first committees. So you have four pressure times. So it is better that during this, uh, you know, time you put your best and then from there, you, you relax a bit and uh, you continue with your work. Of course, now we have extra pressure, uh, so to say. 
Just one last question about your life in New York City. Uh, were you able so far to find any good South African restaurant in the city, some good South African food? And if so, can you name some of them? There used to be one, Madiba, but it's closed. So, but you know, South Africa is a multicultural society. So, there are Indian restaurants, we have Indian restaurants in South Africa. Italian restaurant, you have Greek restaurant. We don't have a national dish in South Africa. We can't say South African food. It's, it's uh, various cuisines that we enjoy. So we look around and says, oh, this is familiar to what we have in South Africa. What is it? It's Chinese. Oh, it's like it's a Chinese food. It's like in South Africa, we have a Chinese community that has been there for about 200 years. Oh, that's Indian food. Oh, we've been in Tanzania for over 150 years. So. Oh, that's a Greek. Oh, they've been in South Africa for 200 years. Oh, that's um, Dutch food. They've been there for 350 years. That's a Portuguese. They've been there for 100 years. So, so you have uh, all these various cuisines from around the world. But there used to be this Madiba restaurant that was um, more or less trying to prepare the traditional South African dish. Now, I must emphasize, I wanted to mean indigenous. But now, I'm totally closed. So... Of course, we prepare in our houses. I have not explored much beyond that. But I know in uh, Brooklyn, I know in Harlem, I'm told there are uh, a number of African restaurants there where we can get cuisine almost near to or slightly similar to what we have. But I've not seen any of them. So, Stephanie, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little disappointed that the one South African restaurant the ambassador liked is now closed. But luckily, that's not the end of the interview. You also spoke about policy, right? Yes. We also spoke about the African Union and China and Western countries' involvement in African affairs and development. And what really sets the tone for South Africa's approach to global affairs is the legacy of Nelson Mandela. Uh, you said at the beginning of either your term on the council or this presidency that you dedicated your term to the legacy of Nelson Mandela and his commitment to peace. At a time in which, you know, many peacekeeping missions under UN are in Africa and conflicts are also concentrated on the continent. How does Mandela's legacy influences your term on the council, you would say? In three areas. First area is in preventative diplomacy. Second area is to make sure that where we had peace agreements, implement them. And um, in third area is where we say, look, once we have implemented them, we have elections, prioritize nation building. So the first one is we can identify that there is a brewing problem. So we say to them, why don't we just sit down and talk? Why you allow the wound to fester and fester? heal the wound. As a result, we have trained so many negotiators in South Africa. We spend a lot of time going to various parts of the continent to say, this issue can be resolved. It is not unsurmountable. There must be some compromises. Actually, it's even cheaper, less costly to sit, talk, negotiate. Then comes the issue once people have talked and we say to them, we'll help you to develop credible voters role so that post-elections there is no dispute. Transparent voters role so that everyone can go 
and say, yes, I'm so-and-so in this constituency, then you can have inclusive elections where everybody says, I did take part and I made my mark to change things by ballot box. And then you get a system where everybody can be there to see the counting of the ballot boxes. All the parties must be there. And outside the polling station, you then put the results there so that everybody can take a photograph and say, in that polling station, all of us agree. We have signed all of us that we are there counted, transparent. So already you win the confidence of the people on the outcome. Now, pose this, we say, don't have winner-take-all. When you come out of crisis, let's take the DRC, let's take South Sudan. You're in crisis. There was bitterness, there was destruction, there was hatred. There was intolerance. What do you need afterwards? So that I win 60%, I win 5%, I win 70%. It's not an issue. The issue is how to use the outcome to heal and build society. So the question of national consciousness, nation building, perhaps a priority. So he says to them, like in Sadaqa Mandela, he won the elections, but he invited the former enemy to form the government together because they had a support which believed in their policies. The issue is, how to bring divided people together. And the third phase is nation building through healing. And Ambassador Machila says that can't happen without youth. South Africa's focus on youth defines their approach to conflicts on the continent. Youth make up the majority of the jobless population all over Africa. And they also tend to be the ones, to a small degree, involved in conflicts and terrorist groups. Here's what the ambassador had to say about that. So they then go to the third phase, healing, reconciliation, which takes time. Elections is a stage, it's an event that you can use to set a tone for reconstruction, for forgiveness, for unity of your people. The youth must be part of it. But the youth sometimes are mobilized for wrong things. They join their mobilized terrorist groups, arms smuggling, trafficking. They join militant groups. If you look at all these groups in Africa, it's a youth. They're supposed to be school. You see in this illegal mining, diamond gold, some people, no shoes in the rivers, saving. You can't do like that. So we thought to say, if you want to silence the gun in Africa, by 2020, who's putting the trigger? But majority of, of youth are not there. Majority of people of youth want better life. And then the second phase we say is, look, there are so many peace agreements. What is lacking? Implementation. That's why when we came in, we said to the DRC, you have to have elections and make sure that gradually the DRC becomes peaceful. But doing everything possible to help people to go to CAR to limit that agreement. So we look at all these uh, areas and you can see gradually 
the frontier for peace are increasing. We'll be right back. Support for Unscripted comes from the Institute of International Humanitarian Affairs at Fordham University. This fall, they're offering online humanitarian training courses. Topics include forced migration, managing or negotiating humanitarian responses, and more. Courses run from October 21st through December 1st. Or earn an international diploma in humanitarian assistance. It's a four-week intensive taught by practicing humanitarian professionals in Geneva, Switzerland, from November 17th through December 12th. For more information, email miha at fordham.edu. Ambassador Magilla is trying to use his Security Council presidency to realize Mandela's legacy, and is taking the council to Africa to do so. One of the places they'll visit is South Sudan, where the UN has a large peacekeeping mission. Part of the reason the council is going there is that the country has finally signed a peace accord to end their civil war. But South Sudan has also been the target of sanctions for a while, and South Africa wants to see the embargoes lifted so the country can develop economically. And while the council is in Ethiopia, there will be a meeting on the Libyan issue. Libya has been suffering from political instability, chaos, and violence since 2011, after NATO's intervention and the fall of Gaddafi. The ambassador isn't hiding the goal of the council meeting. The African Union dissented from the UN's decision to establish a no-fly zone over Libya in 2011. So far, the Africans feel that they are sidelined. So that's why we put in the agenda of the joint council discussion the issue of Libya. We believe that both councils should discuss it, more so that it impact on the Sub-Saharan Africa, so the Libya question alone. So Majila took a pretty clear stance in his press conference. African countries feel like they're not involved enough in Libya. Western countries have grown increasingly involved in the country, I would say for one major reason. It's a critical location in Africa where migrants have been leaving the continent for years and were being smuggled through Libya. And, of course, Libya also has oil. At the General Assembly opening session in September, there was one meeting on the topic that was organized by France and Italy. Italy is where most of the migrants have arrived and claim asylum, but that has stopped. France is where many migrants try to end up. So Western countries' main interest was, at some point, to keep the migrants in Libya or the rest of Africa. Europe has paid certain African countries to resettle African migrants or stop them from heading into Libya. But inside Libya, there's a formal government that's weak and an informal one triggering conflict. After the fall of Gaddafi, Ambassador Machila says the African Union had a plan, but Western countries had their own, and it's the one that prevails. For the ambassador, what mattered most was that there was an abundance of weapons in Libya, and those should have been contained first. He thinks building up government institutions and democracy could have come after. The ambassador and others feared that weapons would spread to neighboring countries, which is what happened and is still happening today. Now, the African Union wants a bigger role in the process of resolving the problems in Libya, and South Africa is leading the way through the council this month. The ambassador repeats the mantra, African solutions for African problems. 
And Libya is not the only area where the African Union wants closer cooperation with the UN. At the end of this month, there will be a meeting on how the two international organizations can better work together. The AU has its own peacekeeping mission in Somalia, and it's crucial that they coordinate with the UN to make it as effective as possible. Stephanie, what did he have to say about the dynamics within the UN between African and Western countries? That was one question I really wanted to ask him. A few weeks ago, the UN Secretary General launched the investigation on the alleged bombing of medical facilities in Syria by Russia. We learned that in the process of launching the investigation, the eight three members of the Council were not consulted at all. Since the Council is the one approving this decision, it had to be consulted. It's unclear whether the Africans were deliberately sidelined, so I asked if that's a common dynamic in the Council. Right. So the fact that they were not consulted is definitely intriguing. What did the ambassador have to say? One thing that he said, the P5, Britain, China, France, Russia, and the U.S., have been working together or against each other on the same issues for 74 years. So they're kind of used to talking to each other and negotiating among themselves. The elected members are there for two years at a time, and although they want to contribute, they're just not part of the same dynamic. At least, that's what the ambassador told me. He added that they often receive documents late, and he wishes that sometimes he got them a bit earlier to have more time to review and contribute. But overall, the rest is fine. And that may be a factor for why the A3 have grown increasingly closer. As the ambassador says, they want a united voice, and the common good for Africa is their priority. That's why even if they don't agree on everything, working as a group makes their stance stronger. And another topic worth noting is China's growing influence in Africa. In recent years, it's become a major business partner in many countries. And as of now, according to Courts Africa, only 14 of 54 countries on the continent have yet to sign China's Belt and Road Initiative. China is currently South Africa's largest trading partner. China's approach to business relationships is definitely different from France's, the United States, or the UK's. Last month, we spoke with Russian Deputy Ambassador Dmitry Polonsky, and he said that African countries prefer to deal with China and Russia rather than their usual partners because they have less of a political agenda. So, Stephanie, you asked Ambassador Mechila if he agrees. That's when I was reminded that he is a diplomat. Like many diplomats who are asked tricky questions, he basically gave an answer that will please everyone. He said that actually, Western businesses still make up most foreign investments in South Africa. So while China trades more, the West invests. He also talked about South Africa's historical ties with basically everyone. The Belt and Road Initiative is inspired by the Silk Road that operated for more than a millennium. So he basically said that South Africa liked doing business with every country. Very diplomatic of him. Thank you so much, Stephanie, and thank you to Ambassador Jerry Machila for the interview. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, with help from Brianna Lyman and reported by Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leinbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. 
and Pass Blue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump defect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to PassBlue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.